Welcome to another episode of Backlash Podcast. This week I'm going to talk to Matt Trino with Matt's Fishing. And I'm solo this week. I have no Brad, no Carrie. So I tried calling Brad and then he had to text me and said, oh, my cell reception is terrible where I'm off fishing right now because uh, we're trying to record this at like 2 o'clock on uh, Monday afternoon. And this episode will come out in a couple days. And he said, uh, I don't think this is going to work. I get like one bar of signal once in a while. So he's like, try calling Carrie. So I sent a text message to Carrie and she said, oh, I would really love to come on, and but I'm far too busy, which is why I usually just skip right over Carrie and, and go right to this because, you know, realistically, I mean, Brad will maybe listen to this episode, but Carrie's the one that makes it all go with Musky Mayhem Tackle. So I'm solo. I got no nothing really to talk about on the intro then. I haven't been doing a lot of fishing. I've been spending some time at the baseball diamond with the kids, quite a bit of time at the baseball diamond with the kids. We had a home tournament, tournament this past weekend, and I spent lots of time watching baseball and raking fields and all of that. Fun time, but a little bit different than chasing down some muskies. We got one more baseball tournament to go. And then baseball season's over, and then hopefully we can start to see more time, you know, throwing some musky baits around. But uh, when you're a, a dad of four and two of the kids play baseball, eh, I guess this is stuff that you do. Not bad, just uh, different. So if you're looking to gear up for your next musky fishing adventures, why don't you check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. As per usual, uh, the inventory never stays the same. We're always looking to add new colors, new baits, new products. And I would say that if you haven't been on our website in a couple days or weeks or whatever, poke around, check out some new stuff. Hopefully, uh, I mean, just from the TRO gear standpoint, uh, if you're looking for some new hats, I think I have roughly, oh, I don't know. We got two different styles of hats, meaning one's got a rubberized patch, which we've seen, but then it's got uh, different you know, colors to it. And then we added in a leather patch with the Team Rhino Outdoors logo on it. And that one we should have, oh, I don't know, 20 different color combinations possibly. So if you're looking for, uh, you know, a TRO hat to rep on the water this year, you know, check that out. Hopefully by the time this episode comes out, I have them online, if not shortly after, because they are not currently here, but they are slated to show up tomorrow. So that would be one thing. And I mean, gear wise, like I said, we get new shipments of stuff every day. And uh, so if you haven't poked around yet, check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. And then if you're looking for Flashaboo Big Bladed Bucktails, check out MuskyMayhemTackle.com. They are your source for everything flash and blades. You want, uh, you know, grenades, mini grenades, triggers, detonators. You can find it all at MuskyMayhemTackle.com. And with that being said, that's the end. That's the intro. I'm going to just jump into my conversation that I had with Matt Trino from Matt's Fishing. All right, our guest this week is Matt Trino, Matt's Fishing. Matt primarily guides in the Minnesota area, in the, in the state of Minnesota, but more specifically, I'd say, Matt, you're spending most of your time on Mille Lacs these days. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. I'd say almost 100% of my time is on Mille Lacs like these days. All right. Well, I've heard some positive things about Mille Lacs, and we can jump to that in a little bit. But before we go there, let's talk a little bit about your background, maybe what got you into musky fishing, uh, what got you into fishing, because you're not only a musky guide. I mean, as you told me recently, you're doing a lot of smallmouth trips as well. So it's not just primarily muskies for for you and Matt's fishing. Yeah, and that's, that's totally correct. I do a ton of smallmouth guiding, and actually I, I got my feet wet guiding initially as a walleye guide and the career has just kind of evolved over the years and 
you know, I grew up uh, born and raised walleye fishermen and fished a lot of different waters. Um, so it was a real natural step for me to start guiding walleyes, but I always had this side passion for muskies. And shortly after I started guiding, it was just a also natural uh, slide for me to work the muskie guiding in as well. Well, I mean, we've talked about on this podcast before, if you're looking to make a career out of fishing, if guiding is your thing or whatever, I mean, it is a very good idea sometimes to branch out and, you know, that way, I mean, I'm sure you, you keep a lot of days booked just doing smallmouth trips. Whereas if you were a, strictly a muskie guide, you know, it might be a little bit tougher. So I'm sure that's been a, a pleasant surprise or addition f- to you to, to do some multi-species guiding. You know, one of the real interesting things about my multi-species guiding is the smallmouth were always on my radar, but it was actually another muskie guide that turned me on to really targeting smallmouth, and then that blossomed into a smallmouth guiding career. <laughs> so, it's funny how the world works that way sometimes. Absolutely. Well, because, I mean, I met you through muskie expos that, you know, yep. you were working on the Thorn Brothers booth all the time. And, you know, we we're always across from each other and you'd think we we're competing brands. Yes, we are. But, um, I always got along with you well. And, and so you were doing a lot of musky fishing and obviously a, a lot of the musky expo stuff. And so, but I haven't seen you around anymore at the musky expos recently. What's your deal for the winter? What have you been up to? Well, I would say in general as a show expo worker for Thorn Brothers. I kind of work through that progression of working a ton of those to now I just work a select few and it just hasn't really worked out timing wise for me to be at a muskie show. Actually, in a couple of years now, it's been since I've been to one last year, for example, the, the St. Paul muskie show, I was actually down in Tennessee working a bass show for Thorn Brothers, but I was at a different location doing a different species. Uh, do you do any guiding through the ice or not, or are you open water specific? I personally am open water specific. Now I do have a couple of guides on my team that are big ice fishermen and I kind of just let them handle the winter part of the business and, and I just concentrate on the summer for me personally. So then do you hibernate and go south for the winter or you stay up in Minnesota? I do a little bit of both. I like to hang out up here for a little bit, but once we get to that really cold time of year, I tend to migrate south. And the last few years, that's been southwest Florida. This year, it might actually be Texas, but either way, I, I do like to migrate south. My my bones get a little cold in the winter months. You know, Matt, let's talk about you, the beginning days of fishing with you. Was it a uh, a grandpa, a dad, an uncle that got you into muskies or, or fishing in general, or was that just something well, that you picked up on your own? It was definitely a grandpa that got me my initial bug for fishing, and it was definitely walleye fishing. Uh, he was a very avid fisherman and had the patience and skill set to bring a, a little young me along and teach me some interesting things and catch some fish. And the musky part of my background actually kind of started by accident and it actually started on Malax Lake when the first stockings were going on and those fish were very aggressive and I happened to hook into a what I thought was a giant at the time and was kind of just hooked on muskies ever since. I've, I caught that first one and I didn't actually catch it but I had it hooked up and from there it just created this passion of I wanted to do more and more 
musky fishing. And for a number of years, that's all I did was musky fish. Yeah, I was talking to some younger kids this weekend. I was at a baseball tournament for my son and, you know, they, they knew I was into musky fishing and they're asking questions. And I, like, I had to like, kind of be like, guys, just don't get involved because when you do, you're just going to want to catch more and bigger ones. And it's just going to become that obsession, you know, and it's, it's crazy how that once you get one, you just can't, it's hard to turn back. It's, it's just really never ending. And it, I don't know if there's any musky fishermen out there that can say they finally caught one that was big enough because there's always a bigger fish. Right. So. And if you have a four fish day, you're like, I, I, we can have a five fish day. We can have a six fish day. You just, it's, it just literally just uh, overtakes many of our lives. I mean, some people do, do probably turn back from it, but many of us just keep going down this like dark hole, I guess I would say. I, I've always said too that musky fishing is the only sport that you can go for an entire weekend and not actually catch a fish. And at the end of the weekend, turn and look at your buddy and say, man, what a great weekend of fishing we had. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, I guess on the guide standpoint, like you could just be like, well, I guess they just weren't biting today. You know, it's a little easier than, I mean, I, I would imagine the clients that you have for smallmouth expect smallmouth in the net every day. Yep, absolutely. And it, it's one of the nice things about doing the multi-species thing is I get to see such a variety in fish activity and different species. And and yeah, with the smallmouth, we're catching fish kind of all day long. And with the walleye stuff, I still do a little bit of guiding for them. And it's a early morning or late evening thing for us there. And it's just a nice variety to do all three species. Sure, absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. You know, you've been on the water. What are you kind of seeing over there in Minnesota? Have you been, I'm over here in, um, you know, like northeastern Wisconsin, and the weather for us has been up and down, up and down, a lot of yo-yos. We get some heat, and then we'll get some, uh, you know, we'll call it maybe below average temperatures, uh, cooler nights. And so it keeps, it's been keeping that water temperature down, even though overall I'd say our, uh, you know, our summer's been kind of warm. You know, is that kind of the same thing that you've been seeing over there in Minnesota? Yeah, it really is. We've definitely seen a lot of ups and downs. And I don't think our ups, our high temperatures, have really been as hot as they have been the last few years. You know, we've definitely had some hot weather. and We hit 90 maybe once or twice, but we haven't had that, like, 10-day stretch where it's upper 80s, low 90s every single day where we really see those water temperatures spike really high. Um, we just haven't seen that. And then our lows have been so low, especially overnight, that the water temps are coming back down pretty drastically as well. So overall, our water temps have maintained um, kind of upper 60, low 70 degree temperature here for a very long time. You know, being as though that you're on Mille Lacs a lot, is the, uh, you know, 80 degree temperature barrier, is that something that you even typically would see on that body of water or not? I would say, we yes, we do see it, but it's not a yearly occurrence for us. Um, it's something I do warn clients about when we're booking July and August trips, especially that that is something that we pay a close attention to and we react accordingly to. And oftentimes we just set those trips up as a smallmouth uh, musky combo. And if the water's just too warm, we go fish smallmouth. And a lot of our clients really enjoy that. But this year, I don't think it's going to be an issue. I'm trying to remember if last year it was. I know two years ago and three years ago, we got into the low 80s uh, and definitely had to slow things down a bit. 
we've obviously established that you're a smallmouth fisherman and a musky fisherman. What can you say would be like the correlation form as far as like location, um, things like that? I mean, are you finding, you know, if you find smallmouth, are you finding muskies in the same spot or do you got to go to completely different parts of the lake? What, what's the setup there? So it depends on time of year, really. And certain times of year, yeah, they're cohabitating areas like crazy. Um, the spring, for example, our muskies are up either doing the spawning thing or pre-spawn, and they're, they're literally cruising the same sand and gravel flats that our smallmouth are pre-spawning or spawning on as well. Um, we've definitely tangled with muskies while smallmouth fishing, and we have definitely tangled with muskie, or, uh, smallmouth while muskie fishing. So it kind of goes both ways. We've also started to see a fair amount of our smallmouth hanging out in the deeper cabbage beds that our muskies like to habitate uh, post-spawn and, and going into the summer open water season. And we've tangled with both species in that deep cabbage as well. Sure. You know, before we started recording, Matt, you were kind of telling me that you ran into a few accidental catches this year because, you know, we'll kind of go down it a little bit. Malax has gotten a bad rap in a sense for like numbers of muskies. Obviously, it's been, you know, it gets a lot of attention because of the size of the muskies that are still there. But I think we may have talked about it slightly in, in episode back, you know, a couple back, how you guys are seeing some more smaller muskies this year. And it, in, in the future, it actually maybe looks a little brighter on Malax than what people had previously thought over the last couple of years. Yeah, definitely. And we, we've seen some evidence of that. And then just talking with other muskie fishermen in the area, whether it's at the boat ramp or over the phone or, or whatever it may be. Uh, a lot of people are having lots of sightings and success with smaller muskies. There seems to be a lot of fish in that sub 30 inch category. I know in my boat in particular, we've caught two or three of them this year that were in that 26 to 30 inch range. And then we also seem to have a lot of fish in that mid 30 inch range. So that like 34 to 37 inchers which is really, really promising for a couple of big upcoming year classes of fish. And I would imagine, you know, since they're, since population was down, obviously they always say like second phases of muskies don't have the same uh, quick growth as earlier ones. You know, like we'll use the Great Lakes muskies. Those things had really rapid growth rates and the ones behind them still are pretty good, but everything is perfect as far as forage and everything on the first run of them that they always seem to, you know, have the best you know, growth rates or whatever. So I'd imagine though, you know, in a couple of years, you know, three, four years, there might be what you call a fishable population of muskies on Mille Lacs. Cause what you guys had be before, I guess is technically fishable, but I know of many anglers that go out there for 10 days at a time and don't catch a single muskie. So I'm hoping that you guys see that where you, you, you can go out there regularly and target muskies like you would any other lake again. Cause I mean, Malax, quite honestly, probably is responsible for a huge amount of growth within the muskie industry, especially with anglers in Minnesota, because just how unbelievable that fishery used to be. Absolutely. And, you know, we get so much press and publicity for the big fish and the large thing, and everybody wants to catch the biggest muskie on the block. So it does definitely draw a lot of attention because of that. And I think having a stronger representation of mid to small and also larger fish would obviously just increase our traffic and success rates here. Especially because you guys, for whatever reason, I don't know what, what it is, but 
there seems to be more opposition in Minnesota to expanding the muskie range, whereas in like you know Wisconsin, it, maybe it's because we have so many muskie lakes, but they're not the necessarily the same quality of what you're talking with Malax, but they don't have that same issue as far as expanding the range of muskies. So you guys, it's really important that they take care of the places in Minnesota and that you have natural reproduction and stocking on the places that already have muskies because, like I said, for whatever reason, there seems to be a lot of opposition to adding additional muskie lakes over in Minnesota. Yeah, and we could probably talk for hours about the pros and cons there and the, the opposition they have received here in Minnesota, but I couldn't agree more. You know, we we need to make sure the lakes that we have are strong and healthy and have good representation of all fish and, and where we can have some natural reproduction that that's uh, maximized as well. All right. Well, one question I didn't necessarily uh, prep you for, and, and we've asked it a few times recently, was like to describe your ideal musky day weather-wise. If you're... What's a day weather-wise that's going to get you like, yeah, we got to get out. We got to be on the water chasing muskies today. I like a little bit of chop out here and it's Mille Lacs Lake. We're known for our big wind and our big waves and I don't want big waves, but I want to have a little bit of chop and I want to have some moving water. So I'd say probably one of my most important ingredients is having that correct wind and that correct water movement for me. Um, so for me, I would, I would definitely say, you know, moon phase and, and overcast skies or clear skies, everything plays a factor, but I get really excited when I see that ideal wind speed. And I'd say somewhere in that, oh, 10 to upper teen wind gust was going to give me the water that's going to be moving and bouncing around a little bit. That seems to get our fish fired up and ready to actually eat. So on like a, you mentioned big wind, big waves. Is there... I would assume there's some safety concerns there. You have any yeah. uh, certain precautions that you would warn people to take of if they're, you know, going to venture out on big water like that? Absolutely, and there, there's definitely a fine line between being being safe and being a little bit dangerous about it. And it's something we do with all of our guides here. We always play the wind, and it doesn't matter if we're walleye, muskie, smallmouth, whatever species we're going after we're going to be launching according to the wind. So if we have a big west wind or a big north wind, we're going to be going out on that north or that west side. Now, for muskies, I'm going to probably travel to where that water is moving because I like to have that moving water for them. And therefore, I like to keep my options open. So if we had, say, a northwest wind, I'd probably launch on the west side. And I know I'm going to deal with a little bit more wind on the west than I would on the north. But I want that moving water as well. And there's a fine line between too much wind and the right amount. What kind of boat are you running these days to combat that? So I've got a, I've got a big boat. I do have a Skeeter. It's a 240SX, which is a big center console 24-footer. You know, you could go on some of these bigger waters with an aluminum boat, 16-foot aluminum. But, you know, to really be safe out there... Uh, a big glass boat is obviously preferred. Unfortunately, nowadays, I mean, those things are upwards of 100000 or more. I mean, that might be on the low end for some of them. It's just unbelievable what's happened to the boating industry as well. It really is, and it just seems to keep going up every single year. And the fact is, as fishermen, we keep buying bigger and better boats, so it keeps driving that industry and that market. It's it's funny, how how many years did we go where... Every big boat had a 200 or a 250 horsepower motor on it. And now you're seeing three, 350, four, even 400 plus horsepower on some of these big rigs. 
you know, I gotta wonder, like, at what point does it end? At what point do, do the anglers say enough is enough? We can't, we can't afford a hundred thousand dollar boat or a hundred and thirty thousand dollar boat, and, and even if we can't afford it, we don't want to afford a hundred and thirty thousand dollar boat. Do you suppose that ever that ever ends or not? I I feel like at some point we're gonna hit that wall. Now I would have thought we would already hit it, and we haven't. So I I don't know. I, I don't think the sky's the limit on that. But I, I do think uh, it's going to keep going for a while yet. I really do. People, people like big boats. They like nice stuff. And to be able to do a lot of the things that we're doing these days, whether we're talking electronics or the water conditions itself or whatever it may be, we need these bigger boats just to accommodate the, the equipment that we're running. Yeah, let's talk about electronics since you brought it up a little bit. Sure. You know, how much nowadays i mean back in the day you used to be able to get away with just your you know whatever a, a nine inch screen was considered great and then you'd have your your regular sonar a lot of times you'd maybe have you know one unit on the boat and you'd have if you were really lucky you'd have one up by the uh, trolling motor but nowadays you had mentioned it too you're running you know a, a regular i'm assuming it's a hummingbird unit with the side image maybe it's garmin you could talk about that a little bit uh you're probably running a a uh, some sort of live imaging and then you also had mentioned you're running 360 you know like just the amount of money and in time or whatever spent on electronics these days is unbelievable you know you want to talk about i guess why you use you know for your specific applications why you're using a side image and a live image and the 360 all at one time so so much of that equipment has evolved so much and how we use it has actually evolved as well so we'll kind of go through a little progression and, and you kind of touched on the first part of it. When I first started guiding and was primarily guiding walleyes, it was a big deal that I had a unit on both the console and the dash. And I remember guys saying and being like, oh, and they're both color. Like, What a big <laughs> deal to have two color screens in your boat. And now you look at our boats, there's four screens on my boat. And there's multiple times this summer and last where I thought, man, a fifth unit on here would be pretty nice, maybe even a sixth. So where's the cap there? It's hard to say. But the, the evolution of electronics for me and my boat, the side imaging is so important, and it, it will continue to be important along with the 360. But I used to use those things not only for scanning and searching for structure and weed lines and gravel and rock piles and all that stuff, but I also use it to, used to use it to target fish. And I was looking for actual fish, whether it be muskies or smallmouth, on those particular screens and views. Whereas now, with our live imagery coming into play and that technology really taking off, now I'm just using that side imaging and that 360 just to mark structure and to keep me on track or to find structure to fish later or whatever it would be. It's more of a scouting tool and a reference tool, and that uh, live imagery has become more important for actually locating the fish, seeing the mood of the fish, the location uh, according to where they are in the structure for where we need to be fishing. All right, so you told me you got four units on your boat. What do you have displayed on each one of those units? So it depends what we're doing, but I, so I've got two Hummingbird Helix units, and I've got two Garmin units on there. They're all 12s. And when I'm scanning and just searching for structure on the Hummingbird unit, I'm running a split screen of my DI, my SI, and my 2D sonar. On my Garmin, I am also running SI 
and a 2D, and then I do run my map on that unit while I'm scanning. When I'm fishing, I switch. And when I'm fishing, I've got on the Hummingbird unit, I have my 360 up, and I have a map up. And on my Garmin unit, I'm just running my, my Panoptics Live. You know, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I feel like, I don't know what, what percentage of anglers, 90% of anglers maybe outside of, you know, we'll, we'll call them like weekend warriors. That's a terrible term, but we'll use that anyways. I'd say 90% yep. of those people can't properly use their electronics. Yep. Do you have, I mean, how much time do you think that you've spent trying to perfect it? Because it sounds like you got a pretty good system and it's pretty dialed in. You know, and it, I couldn't even put a number on it. I spent so much time tinkering with those units to get them where they're absolutely dialed in. And it it's a comment I hear in my boat a lot. And I end up taking a fair amount of trips where we're literally, our goal for the day is teaching electronics. Yes, we're going to do some fishing, but we're we're primarily learning about what the electronics I'm using, how I dial them in, what I'm looking for on them to get them to that fine-tuned state. And the other comment I hear all the time in the boat is, wow, I wish my unit looked like that. What are your settings? And every boat's a little bit different, and obviously every body of water is a little bit different, so there's no way to say, hey, here are your perfect settings. But we can sit down and go over how I fine-tune everything to get that good image on my screen. So what kind of advice do you think you would get give to an angler to just get more comfortable with their electronics on the water? Because like I said, I'm certain that there's probably 90% of them that can't properly use it. I mean, I'm, I'm not on the water nearly as much as I used to be, but I still get some trips in. And I don't even think that I can scratch the surface on how, you know, how good I should be with my electronics. You got any advice for, you know, us novices, I guess I'll call us, to, uh, to help dial that stuff in a little bit? Absolutely. You know, one of the things I tell people all the time is to take some time. And I know it's hard to do when you don't get a ton of time fishing, but maybe in the spring before your season opens or you've got a little bit of time in the afternoon when there's not a good fishing window or whatever it may be. And whether that's an hour or two or a day or two, the more time you just spend playing with the different settings on that unit and adjusting things, the quicker and better you'll get at fine-tuning it to whatever body of water you're on. And that's something for an angler that travels around and goes to a lot of different bodies of water. You know, my settings change throughout the season based on our water conditions and how deep I'm fishing. But if you're changing what body of water you're fishing every single weekend, say, well, it becomes even more important for you to get better at adjusting those settings because the first thing you're going to do or should do when you back into that new body of water is kind of get those electronics dialed in to where you are comfortable and you're seeing what you need to see for that particular lake or river. Well, I guess I'll, I'll say that, for example, like if you're fishing in a dark stained body of water, do your settings change at all versus a clear body of water? So it, it's, it's interesting, and yes, yes, they do. And it has to do, I think, with the acidic levels of the water, too, seem to play a difference. But every time I switch lakes, my settings change. Now, they don't change drastically. It's not like I'm starting from scratch or starting over again. But I might be playing with my contrast a little and certainly playing with my sensitivity quite a bit on the side imaging. Um, it just so happens I was on... Uh, Leech Lake two weekends ago, and then I was on Pokegama just this last weekend. I actually just got back in town from Grand Rapids. 
So I literally just had to do that. Now, my settings from Malax to Grand Rapids were pretty close. I think I moved my contrast maybe a notch or two, and I had to bump my, my sensitivity up a couple of notches, but overall, it was pretty darn close. Um, leech, however, when I went to Leech, and I don't know if because that water is a little more tannic or, or what it was, but it was more of an adjustment. It still only took a couple minutes to do it. But it was more of an adjustment going from Mille Lacs to Leech Lake than it was going from Mille Lacs to Pokegama Lake. All right. Well, then I guess the biggest question I have is we've had this conversation that, you know, the, the, the live imaging is being talked about all the time. That's like the, the latest, the greatest, you know, everything. Every, everybody to, wants to talk about it. But if you could only, you know, obviously it's a very hypothetical question. You're running them all and you all have different applications. If you could only run one, are you going to be running side image, live image, or are you going to be running a 360? Oh, I can only run one. You know, honestly, it would either be the side imaging or the 360. And it might depend on what species I was going to fish. I think if I was targeting muskies for the day, I would take the, the uh, side imagery. And if I was going to be fishing smallmouth for the day, I'd take the 360. And both of them would be for the purposes of finding structure and making sure my boat is where it needs to be. It seems like that's the side imaging is still what most guides are, are going to fall back on. If they can only have one, they're going to lead back on the side imaging and you know, like it's let's maybe have a quick brief conversation about this. I don't want to go down it too much. This seems to be always a lot of controversy around um, live imaging, and yep. you know, almost like wrecking fisheries. But I think, and and I don't remember the rage when side imaging came out. But I would assume that there was probably similar conversations when side imaging first came out. Wouldn't you think? Absolutely. Yep. I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I think we could look at every major step in our technology for fi for fishing and see that same thing. I mean, think about when the ball mount first came out and everybody was using an anchor trolling with a two-stroke motor and what an advantage a ball mounted trolling motor made to those first guys that had one. Same with the GPS. It wasn't too many decades ago where you were lining up the red cabin with the big pine tree on the point to find your fishing spot. And now all of a sudden you have a piece of equipment on your boat that's going to tell you exactly where that structure is. Uh, same with lake maps, you know, having all that stuff at your fingertips that guys spent years and years and years learning. And now it's just available to everybody. I think we could go down a rabbit hole forever with every little advancement in our fishing tech being a major game changer. And I, I do think the live imagery is huge. I mean, it is without a doubt, probably one of the greatest tech advancements in the fishing world in recent times. Um, I'm a big fan of it. I obviously use it and run multiple uh, different versions of it. I think I could live without it just fine, but I certainly like to use it. And I like having that as a tool in my arsenal. Yeah, I you mentioned maps there. I still think map, you know, the mapping and the map chips and the advancements they've made there. I still believe that that's an important one as well. I mean, because you know, like you said, I used to spend lots of time. You know, we have seasons here, much like you do there for muskies. I would spend a lot of time out of season marking, just driving around, dropping waypoints all over the place. And now I don't do any of that because I just go right off my map chip, and they're usually so accurate that I don't need to screw around too much. It's incredible how far that mapping's gone. I remember sitting 
at a computer when the first one foot contour map came out for Mille Lake. And there were three of us huddled around this computer looking at different reefs. And it was like, wow, they nailed it. That's exactly how that little finger goes. Or that's exactly how that little reef goes. And it totally blew our minds that all that stuff was now available. And we were staring at it on a computer. And very shortly afterwards, that was on a chip that went right into our unit to give us all that information on the water. Mm -hmm. So huge advancement. Yeah. And I mean, obviously you can fine tune that even better if you do the, uh, I don't know where you drive around and you can scan it all and it, it auto auto, auto chart. Yep. I mean, you can yeah. fine tune it even more if you want to do that. But I mean, as is for your, your average angler, that's pretty darn good compared to what we were dealing with before. I mean, it's, it's amazing to me, you know, like just, I mean, just the technology changes that we've made in the last, I don't know, 10 years, how much better. I mean, mapping has gone back farther than that, but you know, 10 years, it's just incredible. And it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how things progress as we move forward, because, you know, the, the rage or the uh, people being upset over live imaging today is going to be, that's going to be like side imaging. It's going to be, everybody's got it. Uh, half of us know how to use it. And the next thing that's upsetting people will be whatever's coming in the future. And I'm sure there's something coming in the future because these companies aren't done now. Right. It's just going to keep going and going and going. And it, it, yeah, it's going to be never ending. And I, I'm excited to see what's next. I can't even imagine what direction they're going to go to next, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be cool. And I can't wait to take a look at it. The technology is somewhat of a catch 22 in a sense, though. Like, do you find yourself enjoying fishing as much today with all the technology as you did before when you had all, when you were like, I don't know, just kind of out there getting away from technology or, or, or are you just, totally thrilled with catch rates and you're you're good with the technology I, you know i go both ways on it um i really am thrilled with it i do enjoy it i love teaching it um i really think it's brought this younger generation in and giving them something that they really want to interact with on the water as well um so i do think there's a lot of pluses to it but i'd be lying to you if i said there weren't times that everything gets shut off and i just go fishing you know, I'm going to use that GPS to get where I want to go, and I'm going to put my feet up. Rare to hear a fishing guide say, sometimes it's just nice to dangle a worm and see what's going to bite for the day. And you know what? Sometimes that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine. And do you get much of that time on the water over the course of a season where you just get to just kick back, relax, and and you know, essentially throw out bobbers, pretend like you were you know 10 years old again? You know, I, I try to schedule myself. I've gotten better about that the last few years because had you asked me that question, say, three years ago, I'd say, no, I really miss going, just going fishing for myself and having a good time. Uh, now I'm at that point in my career where I, I literally schedule myself a little bit of time to go fishing and just to relax and unwind. And I think as I age as a, a human being and as a fishing guide, that that becomes even more important. You know, this is a sport that i got into because i was so passionate and because i loved it so much that i don't want to lose contact with the stuff that i actually like and the time that i get to go out and i call it going out and to play and the time that i get to go out and play i'd say it's it's pretty well split you know sometimes i'm going out and i'm just scanning and looking for new structure or playing with new settings on my live scope or whatever it may be and then there's other times where it's Yep, I'm going to put that bow mount in spot lock, and I'm going to toss a bobber with a leech on it behind the boat, and I'm going to sit in that swivel chair and put my feet up, and if the bobber goes down, 
I'm going to set the hook. And if it doesn't, I'm still going to have a good time. The one thing that amazes me about muskie, not even not muskie guides, just guides in general, is just how much it's almost like they need to be on the water. It's like their oxygen. And even on days off, they have to be on the water. You know, there'll be a, we'll, we'll use October because the weather can get kind of nasty in October. It'll be like a 40 degree rainy day in October and they're still out there chasing whatever fish they're after that day. And for the most part, they continue to do it year after year. So it must not bother you guys too much. Whereas me standing on the sidelines, I'm, I'll be at work or whatever. And I'll be like, yeah, it's a 40 degree day and it's raining out there. I like, I'm pretty happy that I'm not a guide today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's just something a little bit different about guides in general where a lot of that stuff just doesn't phase us or at the time we don't think about it maybe, but it uh it's it's amazing and and that's something you know people ask me all the time well what do you do on the poor weather days or how is it really fishing in late november on malax and yeah it's tough but at the time that's that's the conditions and i tell people all the time i'm going out there every day anyway so i'm going to be out there when it's nice and it's 75 and beautiful but i'm also going to be out there when it's 30 degrees and the wind's blowing sideways because you can only fish every day if you go every day yeah, the other ones are the, like the flat, calm, 95-degree days or even 90-degree or 85. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Those days, too, I'm not jealous of you guys either. Like, it's just, um, it, the, yeah. those aren't great either, so. No, they're not. And I'll be honest, I think I like the 30-degree days a little bit better than I like the 92-degree days. So, it, it definitely goes both ways. And there, there, we've had discussions before where it's like, boy, what if we could just take an average of the wind? So it was never too windy and it was never too calm. It was just blowing 10 miles an hour every day. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be fantasy world, <laughs> but it'd be nice. <laughs> Maybe that's the, the next piece of technology hummingbirds going to come out with. <laughs> <laughs> I'll wait for it. Hopefully it's in my lifetime. All right. So Matt, we've done a few things we've called like five questions. I don't know how many I got written down here. It might be more than five, but I'll call it five to start with. So let's go down a couple of these I got on my list. Let's go uh, bulldogs versus medusas. I'm a big bulldog guy. If we went and looked at my bait wall right now, there is significantly more bulldogs than there are medusas. I do use both. I definitely use both, but if I had to pick one, it'd be a bulldog. All right. Well, to expand on that slightly, when would you pick a Medusa as opposed to a Bulldog? Obviously, there's a certain situation. And then I'll, I'll ask you one other question. Because you're an older, we'll, we'll, call, we'll call you an older muskie angler. You've been doing it for more, more than 20 years. And Medusas, I would say, have been something that came on in probably more like the past 10 years. Do you yep. think you would have been more apt to throw Medusas had you not grown up essentially on Bulldogs? Because I'm a Bulldog guy, but Medusas catch a lot of muskies. And... I, I go to Bulldogs because that's kind of what I grew up on. That was my confidence bait from 15, 18 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd be actually agreeing with you a, a lot on that. I think a lot of it has to do just when I got into it, when I started fishing. And I remember saying when the Medusa came out, well, I already have all those big rubber baits. Why, why do I need another gray and silver one? You know, why would I do that? So I would definitely agree with you a little bit there um, to expand on it a little bit more. I tend to find if, if I have a client that's just swimming the bait, they're not working that rubber bait as much as I like to work it or others like to work it. And they're more just swimming it or a little bit more of a pull and pause and less actual action on the bait. We've caught more fish on the Medusa in that scenario than I have on a bulldog. So 
a lot of times when I'm just watching a client and how they fish, rather than I try to give everybody advice and technical support when we're talking and cast and retrieve and all that. But if they're more prone to do more of a straight retrieve or, or less action on that bait, I'm more likely to reach in that tackle box and pull a Medusa out. I mean, a great explanation of where you'd use one one versus the other. All right. So like another one I have is uh, speed versus slow. We'll, we'll assume we're going bucktails. Are you going to be burning more often or are you going to be reeling at a moderate pace more often? For whatever reason, for me, there is no such thing as slow. And it's something that's really affected my bass fishing, too. I have a hard time slowing down. And when I'm bass fishing, I can mentally prepare myself for it. But when I'm musky fishing, there seems to just be one speed, and it is awfully quick. Okay. So I'm assuming you're going to be using high-speed reels. And, it, you know, is Shimano the reel of choice for you? Yep, I'm I'm definitely a big Shimano guy when it comes to my my musky stuff. I run a lot of the tranks, um, and they are all high gears. All right, next one: troll versus cast. I prefer to cast. I definitely like that interaction with the fish. I like that control. We do do a fair amount of trolling as well. I do enjoy trolling, but as far as guiding goes, my day is more entertaining and more interactive when we're out there uh, chucking musky baits all day long. All right. Watch. I can understand. So when we are trolling, the next question I'll have here would be yep. he headlock versus matlock. Oh, I'm a matlock guy. I do have a lot of both, but for whatever reason, I've caught more fish on matlocks and it could very well be because I run more of them, but I definitely, I definitely like the matlock. Yep. And then would you be uh, a 10 inch or a 12 inch guy? Um, so when it comes to a headlock, I like the 12. When it comes to a matlock, I like the 10. All right. That seems to be a very Minnesota thing. Us Wisconsin guys, we like them small both ways. We're like, we're going 10 inch headlocks and 10 inch matlocks. I will have to agree with you though. If I'm going to reach for one, I'm going to reach for the matlock more often, but I don't know. Maybe it's, be, maybe it's time of year. You know, I hear that if you uh, crank up the speed on a headlock and you're really flying, that's a better option. I'm told, or maybe if the you know, if you're looking for a little more subtlety at a slower speed, that's where you go with the headlock. But I still reach for matlocks an awful lot. Yeah, I do too. And, and you touched on something that I do do a lot. And when we're really ripping out here, trolling, we're moving at a really high clip. You'll find headlocks on my lines. I, I do run a lot of them in that scenario. And it's rare for a Malax trolling musky guide to say, he would prefer the smaller version of a bait. Typically, we go bigger, bigger, bigger here. And I've legitimately caught even small muskies out here on 18 to 20-inch crankbaits trolled in the fall. But I do like that little bit smaller matlock. It seems to get a lot more wander out of it. All right, looking back on one of my other questions I had here, since we were talking about bulldogs versus medusas, would you be pounders or magdogs? So I really prefer the pounder. Um, I will throw pounders all day long, but some clients can't handle a pounder all day long. So I do keep a whole lot of mag dogs in the boat, and I can't tell you the relief some customers have after a couple hours of casting a pounder when I look at them and say, hey, how about we put a mag dog on for a while, and they just breathe a little sigh of relief that it's going to be a little bit easier casting. It's amazing when you make that that little down change when you go from a pounder to a mag dog, or if you go from a mag to a regular dog. Un yep. Unbelievable how much different that is, and how much easier it is on you. 
It, it really is. And I, I, we used to do the same thing with the big bladed baits out here too, where I'd start them with the bigger blades. It's easier to start bigger and downgrade in the, in the middle of the day than to start small and then have them go up to something bigger. You kind of wear your clients out a little harder that way. All right. For new musky anglers or, you know, we'll say people aren't as experienced with a pounder. You got any tips to offer up on, you know, helping them out with throwing those things? Cause it's not easy. I'm not going to lie, but the gear that we have available to us today definitely makes it easier than it was 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, long rods are definitely your friend. It's not, and I, I see it cause I see so much crossover between the bass and musky world. I think an awful lot of bass fishermen, musky fishing, and I take an awful lot of musky fishermen, bass fishing. And the one thing I tell a lot of my bass fishermen, you're not whipping this thing. It's not like you're throwing a, a spinner bait or casting a paddle tail swim bait for a four pound fish. You can't just whip that thing out there. It's more of a lob. It's a little bit different. And a lot of people get concerned about the bait caster and, and that stuff too. And it's amazing how forgiving that big 80 and hundred pound braided line is. Uh, just go out there, lob it out there and work your way out to that long cast. And before you know it, you're, you're chucking that thing a mile. Yeah. I think that, uh, I mentioned this on the podcast before Jason Hammernick, he was the one that always kind of was like set the standard as far as how to cast a, uh, a pounder. He'd always have like five feet of line out dragging yeah. the thing behind him. And I was like, <laughs> man, that's really strange. But if you, once you get used to doing it that way, it makes th throwing pounders so much easier. It's not nearly as torturous when you do that. No, it really isn't, and it's it's something I say in the boat a lot. If the tail's not hitting the water on the other side, you're either not going back far enough or there's not enough line out. And literally, it's it's amazing how many people are trying to cast between, if you think of a clock, like a 3 to 10 position, and you need to be all the way back. You need to be to that uh, where your rod tip is literally vertical behind you, so, or horizontal, I mean. No, another question I have for you, and I'm assuming you're going to go with with the higher on this one. Are you looking for longer rods over nine feet, or are you going to use anything under nine feet? So my shortest rod right now, um, I do have a couple of nine footers. Everything else is over nine. I really haven't dabbled a whole lot in that ten foot mark, but there is a whole lot of nine foot six and nine foot eight, and a couple of nine foot ten rods in my boat right now. You finding that with the bass fishing, you're you're going away from like six foot, seven foots now too to go bigger, longer, and, and bigger on those as well. Yeah, so that trend is continuing over into the bass world for me. I have multiple rods that are eight and a half feet that we fish smallmouth with. Um, I would say my average smallmouth rod is seven and a half feet now, and I don't think I have anything that's under seven currently. Uh, that's what I got for for we'll call five questions today. You know, Matt, one of the couple of questions I want to ask you before we get out of here is what do you think the biggest advancement that we've seen in musky fishing in the past 10 years? Is it the electronic side of it? Is it the gear side of it? Boy, it's, it's a toss up between reels and electronics. I, I just look back at what we were running for reels 15, 20 years ago, and I, I cringe a little bit. It's amazing that we actually caught fish. So so reels would definitely be a big one are, are bigger faster stronger but more particularly uh faster reels than we were running years ago has definitely been a game changer in the musky world and on our bodies as well uh because we're not working those things as hard as we once did 
I would say equally as important as the electronics. We are way better. The average fisherman now has so much more information at his fingertips than he has ever before. And that has made the average muskie fisherman so much better. All right. Last question I want to ask you before I let you talk about your guide service and where people can get in touch with you. If uh, you had to give out one tip for muskie anglers to help put more muskies in the net this summer, what would your one tip be? Oh, you know, it's such a cliche thing to say, but it's it's all about time on the water. And the more time you spend out there, and I'm not even necessarily saying time on the water actually fishing. Just time on the water, observing what's going on. What are the fish doing? Using those electronics. I've learned countless important musky tips by being out bass fishing or being out walleye fishing or just being out on the water scanning and looking around that I just think time on the water is so important, whether you're chucking a musky bait or not, just to kind of take all that information in and then take some time to process it and apply that to your musky fishing. Absolutely. So Matt, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to talk musky fishing with me. If people are looking to get in touch with you or they want to book a trip or just learn more about you, what's the best way they can go about doing that? So best way to get in touch with me, my website is www.mattsfishing.com. That's a good way to track me down on there. You'll find all my contact info as far as phone number, email, or you could even directly message me right through the website. Uh, also, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, uh, all under that Matt's Fishing label. Wow, TikTok, Matt. That's impressive. I'm not, yeah, even, you I'm know, not even there yet. TikTok has kind of become one of those things now, and there's quite a few guides on there. And little short video clips, it's super easy for us to edit and throw stuff up short term. And the other thing is we go live a lot and it's amazing how many people will just sit there, I'm assuming at work or wherever they may be, and watch other people fish live streamed on TikTok. And we have a lot of fun doing it. People interact and it's a good time. Living vicariously through you while they're at their office desk, right? That's how that goes. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> All right, Matt. Well, I want to thank you again for your, your time today. It was great chatting with you about uh, fishing. And hopefully I get to see you at a show again sometime. I don't know when that'll be. We will be back at uh, the Minnesota Muskie Expo this winter. Maybe our, cro our paths will cross, and I'll see you then. I, I heard a rumor that I might be there this winter. Well, or this, I guess it would be spring. But, uh, uh, yeah, maybe we'll see you there. Thank you for having me on. It was a good time chatting with you, and I appreciate it. And, yeah, we'll catch up with you this winter sometime. And for our listeners, I just want to thank you for putting up with us for another episode. We'll have a new one again next week, Wednesday. Wednesday.